Hey, Dan, welcome to the World XP Podcast. This is episode number eight. Uh, I'm excited to have you on. I know we've been talking about it for a while. We, you did a commercial shoot down at my company, uh, and I, I met you there, and we had talked about it then, but now we finally have you, so welcome. Yeah, thank you. I know. Thanks for having me. I know we have a, a lot of very interesting points to cover today, so I'm excited. Yeah, definitely. So if you want to get started, if you want to just kind of introduce yourself a little bit, I know you're, uh, like we said before, super into the photography, videography type thing, but how did you, how did you kind of get started in, in that? Uh, and then how did you stick with it? Cause I know some people pick up hobbies and then they're like, uh, they do it for a week and they're like, oh, I'm bored. I'll just go play more video games, but you've made a, you've made a business out of it. So how did you get started and kind of what made you stick, stick with it? Yeah, so I think around the time that I met you freshman, sophomore year at UMW, um, I was looking for something to ask my parents for for my birthday. And it was my 20, either my 19th or my 20th birthday. So it was around the age where they're still kind of buying me nice things for my birthday and not really an adult yet. Yeah. But um, I've always really been interested in creative um, since I was a kid, and that used to be music. But once I stopped playing music, I was always looking for things to uh, release my creative, my creativity, and just a new outlet for creativity. And so I asked them for my birthday to get me a camera, and they got me a little $500 starting kit from Costco. Uh, which is so crazy to think about because now we our lenses are like four times the amount that my total kit was. But I just saw a lot of really good photographers and I thought I could do what they did. And uh, having that $500 camera to me and I guess first piece of advice that I will give in this video is that having that lower grade camera really taught me how to edit. And mm. in photography and videography, what I really love to do is I love to edit. So um, just starting out with a not as good camera, but really learning how to edit is I think what's kept me going and what's kept me going in business as well. Mm. So when you started, because I know, I know some of uh, we got some other friends who are photographers. Did you start just doing smaller like graduation type shoots around the school or is that is that kind of where did you just kind of fool around like you were on different trips to different places and you were like oh let me just take a picture of this thing and then you started posting on places or kind of how did you get going with that yeah so I was really fortunate that around the time I got my camera um, I got to play around with it for a couple weeks and then my family took a trip to Peru and so I brought my camera there. We went to the Atacama Desert in Chile, mm -hmm. which is the driest desert in the world. Um, also went to Machu Picchu, which is like one of the seven wonders in the world. So I got a lot of hands-on time with my camera. But I think in the United States, when I first started taking pictures, I wasn't really doing paid gigs, nor was I looking for paid gigs. I was just trying to create things that really inspired me and things that I thought other people would think are cool. And I think the very first paid gig that I got was actually, I was um, on one of those uh, outlooks that airports have where you can watch planes take off. Mm -hmm. and I was doing some sunset photography there with some planes in the background. And a guy walks up to me and he's an AAU basketball coach. And he's like, hey, this weekend, if you're free, I'll give you 200 bucks to come shoot my team. And to me at the time, I was like 19 years old, 200 bucks to yeah. take some pic to take some pictures. That was amazing. 
and I think that's when it kind of started turning in my head to where like my creativity might be able to be profitable. That's awesome. I feel like a lot of people start off the ones who are super successful anyways, that turning their hobbies into businesses never start off yeah. looking to make it into a business. They always just do it because they love it and they become good yeah. at it. And then people want to pay them to do it because they're good at it. Um, I feel like that's kind of the same with you guys. Cause I've seen, cause you're still what, 22, 21, 22, 22. Yeah. Like you guys are still so like super young within your careers and the, the stuff that you produce. I was telling the people, at my company I was like hey man if we want to get these guys back for whatever sort of commercial or whatever like these do guys they, they they do great work it's almost like you guys have such passion for what you're doing that it shows in, in the products that that you guys put out there um, yeah. which is obviously super important it keeps you guys viable as a as a business for sure if yeah. you don't if, if you don't produce good stuff nobody's gonna buy it but yeah. um so I know we had talked about so Machu Picchu, you go to Machu Picchu, and that's probably, that's early on, you said, so I feel like that's probably one of the things that kept you going. If you didn't, maybe if you didn't go so early on, things would have been different. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people with really nice cameras, and they have even bought it, bought it themselves and not even gotten them as a present to kind of get into it a little bit, and then in a couple months, it's just they're collecting dust, mm -hmm. and I, I've definitely been surrounded by creative people and been given opportunities to go on these trips with my family and do really creative things to where I feel like it would be really unfortunate if I didn't have a camera at these places and yeah those opportunities really really kept me going so I want to slide off the camera thing just for a second when you're in Machu Picchu in Chile and I know you've been to Argentina as well yeah. um, what were those places like what were your experiences there how did it differ from here um like the people cultures like because you because you captured a lot of that so I, I would guess that you would be pretty in tune with with a lot of the culture just because you had captured so much of it uh photographically yeah I think one of this is getting into just like humanity and like stuff that I've realized while taking pictures and just exploring mm -hmm. foreign countries. But what I realized just the experiences that I've been able to have in South America, particularly with my camera is that life in the United States is definitely, I'm not going to say a lot harder than it has to be, but uh, last summer in 2019, I was down pretty much in Antarctica on the very lowest tip of Argentina mm -hmm. and people there it's food shelter uh water and just bringing a camera there just a piece of equipment that they've probably never seen in their life was really special to me because it's like I get to not only show my friends back home and everyone online the kind of simple lives that you guys live but I also get to capture that for myself and because of this me because i have this medium i love so much it really helps me tell the story so when i come back to my friends and i post on instagram i'm not just telling the story about argentina but i'm showing them in the most creatively beautiful way i know possible mm -hmm. um kind of a picture of the experience to help them get it in there like walk them through my experience yeah what does that mean to you to be able to to be able to do that to not just because like i've I was in South Africa for a while and I had like my phone. So I took some pictures, but obviously you being, 
kind of knowing what to what to take pictures of and how to get the right sort of tell the story what is that like for you being able being able to come home and not just tell people the story but show show them the story say hey I was talking to this person and they do this they get up and they fish every day or they get up and they I don't know hunt or do whatever it is they do like what's what's it like for you to be able to do that yeah and there's entire career fields around it like the people at National Geographic literally do this for a living but to me there's the traveling aspect. There's the artists that I've met while shooting on tour. I just think in general, being able to capture those moments and bring them back to where you're not just telling a story, but you have an image to go with that story is really special. Cause I think it inspires, it inspires people in a couple of different ways. It might inspire you or someone we know to pick up a camera and learn photography but it might also inspire someone to get out of their bubble that they might've lived in in the United States their whole life and go experience different cultures, which from a humanity standpoint, is really good because you just become more accepting of people and mm -hmm. you don't really, you kind of break from the mindset that the United States is the only country that exists in the world. Yeah, definitely. I think that's part of the goal of this podcast, just in a different way. Uh, to yeah. kind of show show that different people, different cultures exist and, and to show that there's different people out there who've lived different lives and that's why they experience things in different ways and how they approach life the way they do. Um, yeah. So it's, a, it's definitely a cool, I definitely get where you're coming from, from, from that mm -hmm. perspective. It's definitely a, to me anyways, I think a really important thing to, to be doing, especially in, in kind of today's today's world where everybody's so wrapped up in everything that's that's like happening day to day right in their own lives in their own little bubble in the u.s um mm. i think it's important to kind of bring that bring that to people um when yeah. when you were traveling did you so you like you have all your camera gear did you go down there with the mindset of like what, what was your mindset going down there was your mindset just to go experience what it was or what were you trying like did you have specific spots that you wanted to go to get pictures or did you kind of like, or were you going just to go or? Yeah. So my, all of these amazing trips that I've been on is because my family and in particular, my mom's side, we're really big travelers. Uh, my grandpa, I don't think has had a permanent home mm -hmm. in his entire adult life. And he's just kind of floated around um, from our family that lives in the United States to his family that lives in Taiwan to my aunt's family that lives in Chile and then to my uncle's family that lives in Brazil. Mm -hmm. So he pretty much had the entire world covered. Yeah. But I think there's been a, it's kind of helped me mature mm -hmm. just realizing all of, um, just being with my camera in these different places because three years ago, three to four years ago when I got my camera in Machu Picchu, I was very much there to make a clout chaser YouTube video, which my camera couldn't even do. But I think I got so caught up in creating content that standing at the top of Machu Picchu, looking down at a civilization that these people hauled stones up mountains for, mm -hmm. um, it's just kind of blurry to me, which is probably one of the biggest regrets of my life because I was so stuck behind my lens that I didn't really experience that I, it didn't really click for me that I was looking at one of the seven wonders in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I think you flash forward to last winter break when I went to Patagonia and hiked and brought my camera. 
um, I think it really taught me my previous experience to slow down and that you're there to experience something that people wait their whole lives to do. Mm-hmm. And the photography and all of that comes second. Yeah. That's really cool. Did you talk to a lot of the, the locals that were that were there? Yeah, so unfortunately I don't speak Spanish, <laughs> but there were tour guides and stuff that spoke English and I love talking to them. It made me mm-hmm. realize that we're really not all that different because my favorite tour guide there was a crossfitter so we talked about nutrition and all uh-huh. of that stuff and i was literally in antarctica talking about bodybuilding again it was it was like i'm at home so <laughs> yeah I, th- I think talking to people culturally just makes me realize that even though we speak a different language we all pretty much have similar interests and you can always find someone somewhere else that's just like you yeah definitely have you ever I was going to ask this before and then I forgot. Now I remember it again, but have you, uh, so as you've coming, as, as you've come back to the United States from, from your trips and stuff, have you, uh, and you're like telling or showing these stories, have you found anyone who's ever like come back and be like, Hey man, like I saw your picture. So I traveled to such and such, like it was a really cool experience or like, have you ever had anything like that? Somebody that's come back to you said, Oh, such and such like inspired me to do this or to learn about, this thing yeah so there was actually one of my friends um, I have people all the time that ask me about cameras and stuff but she was actually going to Machu Picchu Mm -hmm. and she bought a camera because of me and because she saw my pictures there which was super special to me because I don't consider myself a famous photographer by any chance I just I do it because I love it but she brought her camera down there and I was like Instagram DMing her the whole time I was like here's how you do camera settings and all of that because she was asking and yeah um it's just really flattering to me from the photography aspect from Mm -hmm. but from the travel and the experiencing life aspect I the people tell me all the time like hey you don't seem like you slow down in life like you seem like you're always trying to go somewhere that you haven't been before and that inspires me and I I love hearing that from people because at the end of the day like the more I can inspire them to go and experience more things, the more well-rounded of a person they're going to be because of the experiences that they have. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. That's a, that's a good answer for sure. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit to your, the businessy side of things. Obviously you guys have made a fairly, let's say very, fairly successful business off, off the back yeah, of, of of this, uh, you and I think we're, it's, we're trying, we're trying to get there. <laughs> yeah. I think is you and four others, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So when you, how did this idea to kind of start this business form was, was it, was it all five of you originally or how did, how did that kind of show up? And then did you guys have the anticipation that you would be where you are now or did you just kind of, were you just kind of winging it the whole time? I mean, like we just like taking pictures and we'll see what, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, so I'll give I'll give credit where it's due. The two OG Triad Studios members and our logo, our name has stayed the same since day one. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes from with the area we live in. It's people who think it's a triad and they're like, wait, you have five people, but it's three because it's a triad. But triad is actually where we're from. It's called the Triangle Area. It's Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. So that's why we named it that. But the OG two members are Bakker and Mikey. And they became best friends in high school. 
But around the time that they were starting Triad, I had just bought my first camera. And the backstory of me knowing those guys is that when I moved back to North Carolina when I was eight, Bogger was my neighbor and we were best friends growing up. So oh, they started they started Triad because they saw people like Sam Colder, Jay Alvarez on YouTube making really dope content that wasn't really popular yet. And they're like, hey, they're creative people just like me. They're like, hey, I want to do this stuff and I'll get paid to travel pretty much. And it just so worked out that I just bought my first camera and me and Bacher, I used to get off um, from work waiting tables at an Italian restaurant at like 1030, go home, change. And then by midnight, me and Bacher would be out in downtown Raleigh shooting together. Um, yeah, it was just that kind of fiery passion amongst the three of us. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of plateaued a little bit because we were just freelancers in our uh, junior years, sophomore, junior years of college, not really knowing what we wanted to do, not really knowing the business aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But then we really started taking off when Bacher met Justin and Tristan at mm-hmm. the Keenan Flagler Business School at UNC. And Tristan and Justin, just like us, super creative guys, but they wanted to start their own media production company because they also had a passion for videography. And instead of trying to fight for the same business in the same area of Chapel Hill. We all got on a house party call. And I distinctly remember this call because Walker was like, hey, I want you to meet these two guys. We might do business with them one day. And I was shirtless in my bed. <laughs> and these guys, these guys show up. I'm pretty sure they're in polos and button downs, just like ready to have a business call. <laughs> and I'm shirtless in bed meeting my future co-founders, which... If you know us now, it's very on brand for me to do. Yeah. But, but yeah. And so we just, without any real question, um, naively said, let's have five co-founders in a startup. And that's, that's just what we did. And that they kind of brought that business aspect that we were missing. Mm-hmm. Not because they were better business people, but because with five brains put together, um we could really excel in our own individual areas of business and not just be creative but also move a company forward to be profitable and sustain our lives definitely that's really cool so how did you guys get the i think when we were talking before you said it was what january 1st of two years ago i think yeah january 1st 2018 is when we officially became a company so you guys officially you guys got all the paperwork done all the legal stuff and then yeah. and then how do you guys get started because you get because once you start your your business you have to find a way to get customers so how did you guys go about getting customers do you guys have consistent customers um kind of like what what sort of did you have to branch out and to do any work that you guys weren't doing before to to get customers or how did that all kind of fit together Yeah, so in the beginning, we thought we could be a one-stop shop for Mm -hmm. any brand, any company. And our very first customer was a medical customer. Um, And we got $500 to make video, to do a website. And to us, $500, that was huge. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now $500, like, gets you a photo shoot, (laughs) a short photo shoot. But we thought we could do it all. And what we've realized is that for us to be successful, we have to be highly skilled in one area, which means that we have to cut a lot of other stuff out. And 
our gear, our camera gear also reflects that we are very highly specialized in one area. Because mm -hmm. when people go to look for a video company, they don't go look for a marketing company that does video. They want the best of the best. And so we had to niche down in our marketplace, but all five of us being super social people mm -hmm. and being really tightly connected with our departments at school also really helped because I think our first really big project was actually the University of Mary Washington. And it was crazy how that one happened because I was in Dan Wolf's movie marketing class mm -hmm. or it was either Dan Wolf's movie marketing class or Majid's marketing class. And I was sitting mm -hmm. next to this girl and for our <clears throat> group project, we had to make a video. And so I was basically just like, guys, it's going to be a lot more work if we try to collaborate on this video. Just let me make the video. <laughs> and so I made the video. We got an A on it. He still shows it every day, every semester in class. And she just so happened to be the UMW Giving Day intern. And they were um, kind of indifferent about the video that was uh, the video vendor and the product that they used the year before. Mm -hmm. So she brought it up with her supervisor who reached out to me. And then we ended up going back and forth and eventually coming up with our biggest deal to date, which I won't disclose the dollar figure, but oh, it was pretty, pretty substantial money for a startup. Sure. And, and that was around the time that Bacher, Tristan, and Justin, who were all UNC Keenan Flagler Business School members, they were just kind of poking at their professors, poking at the faculty there. Mm -hmm. And we were getting big contracts with them too. So in the beginning, when we were students, like seniors in college, we thought that we were just going to be successful and make university and college videos the rest of our lives. But there's a, there's a, kind of some stipulations that go with that because yeah. every everything you do has to go through a hierarchy and we quickly found out that that's not really the way we wanted to go mm -hmm. which is really unfortunate because uh, i'll answer your second question now okay uh we get the majority of our business through word of mouth and we've tried cold calling we've tried cold emailing there was a summer that we'd come in the five of us collectively and send ten thousand emails a week and we got one sale from it the entire summer. So that really changed the way that we do our product because now we know we have to make every video that we make, no matter who the client is, as good as possible mm -hmm. because, because it's a referral-based industry. People aren't going to look at your metrics. They're going to look at your work. And if they like your work, they're going to hire you. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. So how... So... You guys got the is the UMW and then some of the Chapel Hill uh, product. So what what did the UM, the UMW product project? What did that uh, entail for for you guys? What what were they asking for? Yeah, it was a video to promote Giving Day, which is UMW's biggest uh, kind of fundraising event every single year, and very unique project because we have a team of five guys, but we obviously in that stage of our business had no idea how to handle a contract that big mm -hmm. and so we were smart we were we thought we were so smart and we were like dan just do the entire project <laughs> and so i produced that entire project the storyboarding the filming i was i literally run around to class with my school backpack my camera and my gimbal stabilizer in the other hand and I just shoot things in between class not knowing what I was doing.
but yeah that's what that project looked like i think i remember you i was probably walking down campus i think i remember seeing you like run down campus walk with the camera in one hand and the gimbal in the other yeah. i was like dude what are you yeah. doing <laughs> yeah a lot of people a lot of faculty and people were really confused because i'd just be in my casual school clothing but yeah. I'd, I'd be flying a drone over the dining hall <laughs> Yeah, and I I just had to tell cops all the time and campus police that like I'm I'm doing work for the school. I promise. Yeah, uh, that's a good one. That's a good story. Like yeah. looking looking back on it, you'd be like, oh yeah, that was a good idea. So yeah. you mentioned uh, storyboarding and then filming, and then obviously you have the editing and, and producing. So what what is the process that you guys kind of go through when, like, let's say a company approaches you, they say, hey, we want to make a commercial or we want to make a video for a giving day or whatever what is your guys kind of process in in from like start to end about how you how you would take on that contract or negotiate the contract not necessarily negotiate but haggle through the details and then start production until the finished product yeah so um i think for the sake of this let's just assume that a company comes to us they have the budget they have the idea um, what we would do there is we'd go into what we call our pre-planning process. And what we found from trial and error is that the more pre-planning you do on the front end, the less revisions you're going to have on the back end. Mm -hmm. And revisions are killers for freelance videographers, video production companies, revisions, just they're a massive waste of time, mm -hmm. unless it's really small things. But we go into the pre-production process, and that's usually going to come with storyboarding, where we'll help them with script development. We'll go through shot by shot of every shot that we're going to get. We'll do things like ask them what their color inspiration is. So if there's a commercial or a movie that they're seeing that they really like the color scheme, we'll ask them for that. We'll get their branding guide. Um, we'll uh, fill out an itinerary for the schedule, when we're going to show up, how many people we're going to bring. We decide if we need makeup, set design, uh, voiceover artists or mm -hmm. actors. And that's all in the pre-production side. Mm -hmm. And then on the filming side, we'll get there. We uh, generally price in uh, half days and full days. Those are pretty much our two packages for filming. Mm -hmm. And we'll go with anywhere between three to five uh, of triad group members. And mm -hmm. then we'll hire out the rest. So if we need makeup and set design and all of that stuff. And then editing, we bring it back to our studio. And because we storyboard so extensively on the front end now, it's really just kind of dragging and dropping and fitting things together. But we like to be creative. So a lot of times we push ourselves to do crazy special effects well, that we've never even tried before. And mm -hmm. so that'll eat up that'll eat up a lot of editing time, but it's what keeps us going creatively. Mm -hmm. And then we we give it to the client and uh, depending on whether or not they have a marketing team, we might advise them on how to boost their post on Instagram or how to get more views on Facebook. But that's not really our expertise. So we pretty much just stop when we deliver the product. Mm, okay, so the storyboarding. So we have two questions. I'll ask them separately. But the first one, yeah. the, story, the storyboarding process, does that just entail kind of like a, a, rough, a rough draft almost of of what you guys are, are planning to do and did you start doing that more expensive i know you said revisions are, are a waste of time but what makes um what what about revisions make it so so much more difficult than doing the the front end because it would seem in some things anyways it's like you're just fixing things 
like you're shooting yeah. and then you're fixing things on one end or the other what makes it so much more difficult uh on the back yeah, end? so yeah so to talk about the storyboarding process first that's um it's a very specific kind of sheet or uh idea that we have and so a company is going to come to us they have their brand um, maybe they just want a general brand video or maybe they have a specific campaign that they're trying to target. Mm-hmm. And in that case, the five of us, we're going to sit around a table or we're going to sit in bean bags and just dream and be creative and kind of write the script together, talk about what shots should go with which part of the script based on other commercials that we've seen or things that we want to try. And so when we deliver the, storyboard to the client it's pretty much the script is already done and every shot in the video is already laid out whereas if you don't really do that you're going to have a lot more on the back end to do because the client's not going to have that sheet that they can approve that you can go back to later and be like hey you approved this already why are you trying to switch things up Mm. but on the back end if yeah on the back end if you don't storyboard they might be like hey we actually wanted this shot and then you might have to go refilm it which is just super yeah yeah definitely that makes sense yeah so that's a cool concept it's almost like a a rough draft but hadn't considered going back and refilming things i'm just in my head i was like if you just film a bunch of things the first day then you decide what you want out of out of the film that you got but sometimes people want other things that you didn't capture um it's like a it's like a safety net for us to say that hey you approve this mm -hmm. so if you don't like the way it came out that's not really on us but we do make we're we'd love to have close relationships with all of our clients because we want them to keep we want them to keep coming back to us so we will go and ultimately at the end of the day fix things but yeah we want to keep uh Good do you write that into your do you write that into your contracts kind of like hey once you approve yeah. the storyboard like it's gonna cost x x number to go have us refilm this yeah so the biggest pain point for us is when a client wants to change a song oh. so because we cut our videos to this to the music mm-hmm. and so what we've started doing is we send them the song that we're going to use with the voiceover on top so they know they can close their eyes and kind of picture how the video is going to sound Mm-hmm. And so on the front end, before we actually start putting the video together, they can tell us that they don't like the song. Mm. Yeah, I can see how that would be difficult to change the song yeah. afterwards because you've already edited yeah. all the timings and stuff for. Mm. Yep. So the second part of the uh, the second question I, I had was, as you mentioned, like makeup and actors and, and some of the other stuff. So would you, when you hire those people out, actually, let me go back. Did you, did you start putting that, uh, the storyboarding, the editing, the storyboarding in your contracts because you got burned and you learned the hard way? Yeah, we just, it was a very frustrating process for us mm-hmm. where we felt like we weren't getting better as business people and we weren't getting better creatively. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of making us not really enjoy producing, which innately the five of us, we enjoy producing. So we're right. just trying to keep a nice work environment to where we have things put in place where our end product is what we actually envisioned up front. Mm, That makes sense. All right. So back to the other part. So when you guys hire these people out, do you have um, people that you guys have like your regulars or whatever, like, you know, you're going to need makeup, like, you know, you're going to this person or, you know, you're going to need a 
voiceover, you know, you're going to that person or does it depend yeah. on the shoot kind of, and how it depends you, on the, it depends on the shoot. Yeah. It depends on the shoot. And ultimately uh, to be super transparent, it kind of depends on how much the client has to spend because mm-hmm. actors and voiceover people, you, you have to pay them. It's not like us. Yeah. Um, so the more money they have to spend, the more we can hire these people out. Mm-hmm. But we act it's something that we've recently started doing because up until probably a year ago, we thought that we were just going to break the mold of a video production company and charge gradually more and more money while using our tiny little cameras. Um, but we've shifted away from that and we're buying cinema cameras now and things that Hollywood movies are shot on. And because of that, we started talking to more people in the industry and learning more and more. And we have these big film studios like Caravan in Charlotte and 180 LA and The Mill. And those guys are all on the West Coast. And we've been networking with those guys, kind of picking their brain. And they've been just giving us guidance on the different steps you got to take to be a big time film company. Hmm. Is that the end goal for you guys? Or are you guys trying to stay just the, the five of you? So I remember when we were talking before, you said at one point you guys had hired some, hired some other people. Um, but what is, kind of, what is kind of the end goal for you guys? Or do you have one? You're just kind of taking things as, as they come for now. Yeah, so that's a really broad question for us. But it's something that the five of us, not just as, we're not just business partners, we're best friends, which is mm. why we can work eight to five uh, eight to six together in the office and then still want to drink together on the weekends mm-hmm. <laughs> because we're because we're family but um, yeah I think we've talked about the end goal for us and um, like like you mentioned we had hired some people in the past and they were all amazing it was nothing to do with them that they don't work for us anymore but managing people is um, from a business perspective, it's super taxing, especially because you got to pay those people. Mm-hmm. And from our perspective, until we get overloaded, that's money that we could just do the work and not have to manage them and worry about if they're doing it the right way and supervise. That's money that could just go in our pockets. So in the future, we are going to hire people when we get overloaded mm-hmm. with things. But we very much, this is all of our babies. This is our first business. Mm-hmm. And what we don't want to let go of is the creative aspect. Sure. So eventually, eventually one day we want to be doing like, we want to have five clients a year. Um, it's going to be like Nike, Adidas, those Rolex, yeah. Rolls yeah. Royce, Audi, those type of companies. And yeah, we just want to be ones. thinking, yeah, we just want to be thinking about what we can do that's never been done before. Mm -hmm. in the video world what kind of special effect what kind of insane video can we do that'll blow people like me and you away and ultimately Mm -hmm. get them to buy a nike shoe Mm -hmm. that's kind of our end goal but the end goal of triad is that we understand that this is not what we're going to be doing for the rest of our lives necessarily Mm -hmm. and it's not because we don't love it but because all of us have um we each have individual life goals and it's not to say that we can't open a triad studios wherever we want to live because that's something we've talked about as well mm-hmm. but we also all have different business ideas because we're all entrepreneurs at heart right. we have different business ideas that we want to pursue somewhere down the line mm. sounds like at least at least it sounds like you guys have kind of talked you guys are all on, on the same page eventually but how yeah. 
So how do you get, like you were talking about the Nikes and the Rolls Royces and the, and the Audis and the Rolexes. How do you, if, if there is sort of an answer, how do you get to that, to that point uh, where you get in contact with a Nike and it's a, and it's a viable option, it's a viable discussion rather than just cold emailing them and not getting a response? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, a, it's an easy answer from our perspective. Um, your name has to be big enough mm-hmm. to where they recognize you. You have to probably knock off a vendor that they're using. So mm-hmm. you just got to compete, bid better. And your product has to be better than what they're current, if not on par with what they're currently using. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that's just kind of what we're striving towards. Yeah. So do you guys have your own, like a, a studio set up some, somewhere? Like you, you guys rent out office space for a studio or do you guys work from home? Or Yeah, so we have a office on Franklin Street in Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever UNC beats Duke, the place that they burn couches and stuff is literally right outside our office door. So it's right smack in the middle of a college town. <laughs> but, but inside that office, we have our... Um, post-production studio which is just our computer room where we do our post-production we have a conference room and then we have a small black box studio that we do like photo shoots and product photography and videos in. Mm. cool so last businessy question and then we'll and then we'll jump um you said you wanted the end goal is to have like those five clients a year or whatever but how many yeah. clients right now like how does it how many clients now, obviously depending on what they want you guys to do, but about how many clients does it take to keep you guys uh, up and running for, for the year? Like, is there a certain yep. number that you have to hit? Because obviously you guys are buying all the new fancy Hollywood cameras and, and the rest of it, which I'm sure is tons of money. And then yeah. the office space and, and the rest of it. So have, do you guys have like a, a balancing sort of plan? Are you like, hey, we need to hit this number or... And, yeah, and so were, do you feel if you aren't close or if you haven't hit that number by the end of the year, do you, do you guys get like, do you guys feel like, Oh, it's crunch time. we got to get another client in to make sure we stay open or kind of. Yeah. So luckily we've never had to worry about the second question. Mm. Um, uh, the really unique thing about us versus other production companies is that none of us went to film school. I don't even think we have a single photography or videography class between the five of us. And wow. so we're, we're five business majors. And so mm-hmm. we have the business side of, uh, of Triad Studios locked down. And what we're moving towards now is like the industry knowledge about film and how to actually execute these, uh, these videos and effects that we've seen and how to operate cinema cameras, stuff that a film student would have known. Mm-hmm. So we have all of our spreadsheets, our cash flow projections, financial records, all of that. We have all of that ironed out. And so we don't, if we weren't making enough money, it wouldn't be the end of the year for us to say like, oh shit, like we need to step it up. We'd, we'd know Q2 that we slacked in Q1. So we need to pick it up to keep the lights on. That's good. I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with that aspect. They've, yeah. got, they've got the creative side or the, the film school, like you were saying, and then they don't have the, the spreadsheets all ready to go. Yeah. Um, if you were to give one piece, of, one piece of advice for anybody looking to start their own business, any sort of entrepreneur types, what would that be? Um, definitely 
be willing to work really hard and don't be shy because what you might think is a super unique idea that no one might buy um there's just from my experience there's a market for everything especially in 2020 so just be be courageous put yourself out there and when you eventually get your opportunity like just just work really hard at it to ensure that it stays afloat definitely it only takes one person doesn't it yeah to get something going takes your first customer is always the hardest one isn't that i think that's the saying yeah that goes all right so switching gears no, you did a, a bodybuilding contest not not too long ago. Was it like six, eight months ago now? Yeah, it was uh, pretty much exactly exactly a year ago. So when I when I stepped on stage, that's awesome. So want to get want to pick your brain a little bit about the first, I guess, the nutrition side of things, and we can kind of go towards the mind mindset side. But um, for for the nutrition, because I know you were posting a lot of your your stuff on Instagram, really. Like, hey, I'm counting out this grain of rice. and i would see your story and i'd be like this guy is doing the most but it's really what you have to do isn't it if you want to compete kind of at at that level or in that in that sort of realm isn't it yeah so most most professional bodybuilders whether they're on roids or natural like i was uh like i am but no yeah last week everybody (laughs) yeah you can you can see that like a tablespoon more of olive oil or like a couple more pieces of pineapple in your diet <clears throat> will affect the um, greatly affect the amount of calories that you consume to the day which really affects your weight loss mm-hmm. so i'd say if you are looking to step on stage and compete it is very vital to weigh your food and calorie count down to the individual macro of each calorie but if you just want to look good at the pool, I don't really think it's necessary. <laughs> so run us through kind of the, the product. I remember we were talking and you and you kind of said, well, at one point I needed to bulk up. So I was eating like a bazillion yeah. calories a day. So how did you how did you kind of decide what weight you wanted to compete at and then put together that plan? Say, hey, this is how I'm going to get to this weight within this yeah. amount of time. Yeah, so there's uh, there's three body types. And so there's the ectomorph, which is like uh, kind of skinny. Um, you've, you eat a lot, but you have a really hard time putting weight. Mm-hmm. And then there's like the mesomorph, which is your typical athlete, someone who is going to have a hard time losing weight, but have a hard time gaining weight as well. Whereas uh, the ectomorph is like, I, it's impossible for me to gain weight. And then there's the endomorph, which is the people that are just no matter what they do, they're generally going to be a little bit heavier. Um, not going to say it's impossible to lose weight across all of them because mm-hmm. nothing's impossible. But I'm very much so in the ectomorph side where I have mm-hmm. a really hard time gaining weight. And so when I decided to compete, I was inspired by a lot of my friends that I work out with back here in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And so I asked my friend Oliver, um, like one of my best friends, uh, to coach me. And he won the same show that I competed in as a senior in high school mm-hmm. and was super knowledgeable about all of it, but I never coached anyone before. But for me, I didn't really, I didn't really care. I just wanted to try something new. Right. And I knew he knew how to handle like my body type and he understood what my body was going to go through because he's very much kind of been like the skinny lanky guy until he started working out. 
Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I let him call the shots. So I think when I first started, we were a year out from the show. I was 170 pounds. And if I was to have just started cutting right there, I would, I didn't really have the size and the muscle mass, natural muscle mass that I needed. So we did like a four month bulking process where we gradually increased my calories and didn't do any cardio and just tried to make me big. And what we found out was that my body doesn't gain weight. And I think like I told you last time over the phone, um, towards the end of the bulk, I was eating like four for fours from Wendy's and like two for 99 cents hot dogs from Sheets as like snacks (laughs) just to put on weight. It was, it was like 5,500 calories a day. It was really uncomfortable to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure you felt like crap. Yeah. Felt like crap. I was like kind of fat. by my standards I was kind of fat um but then after that I think in around my birthday May 12th uh, we really started to kick things up and I experienced the grind that bodybuilders on YouTube and stuff go through where you're weighing food out um cardio goes up calories go down you wake up every morning hungry you go to bed every night hungry and so I'd send him daily check-ins Um, where I'd hit my poses shirtless and he'd look at me and adjust my macros accordingly. Um, I'd weigh myself every morning at the same time with no water, no food in me, just to see like how my weight was fluctuating. Mm -hmm. And he'd tell me exactly how many grams of protein, carbs, and fat that I was allowed to eat that that day. So walk us through kind of the grind. Once once you start getting into the the cutting, sort of what's your routine for what are you eating what's your workouts like um how much sleep are you getting how much water are you drinking like all that sort of stuff yeah so i'm sleeping just normal amount eight to ten hours a day but when you get towards like the last couple weeks it's harder to sleep because your body is literally starving Mm -hmm. and it's trying to keep you awake so that maybe you'll go get some food but um, for the most part, through the whole show, you're drinking um, gallon to a gallon and a half of water a day. So I'd be that guy that carries around a gallon jug with me. Um, and for my workouts, the I think the really good thing is that I've been working out for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So nothing really needed to change um, because my body was getting weaker naturally because I have less food. Uh, I wasn't doing one rep maxes anymore. Instead, I was doing stuff normally in like the 10 to 12 rep range and really focusing on the mind-muscle connection and getting a good contraction Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. just being slow and deliberate with my movements rather than just seeing how much weight I could move. Yeah. (laughs) And And then the cardio would go up. And I think at my peak, I was doing an hour on the Stairmaster a day. So I'd have to split it up to two a days. I'd go lift in the morning at 5 a.m. before going to work. And then after work, I'd come in at like 9 or 10-ish and hit my hour on the Stairmaster. Jeez. Remember seeing some of your stories, your Instagram stories, when I didn't yeah. want to work out in the morning. You see, I'd go on Instagram and be like, ah, oh, dang, I'll post another story. I guess I got to go to the gym. Yeah, nothing a face full of pre-workout can't solve in the morning. <laughs> Definitely that. So that must have been hard to continue to work then, like your normal, the normal grind with all the production and, and the rest of it whilst, whilst preparing for this competition. Was it 
was it difficult? I mean, obviously it was difficult, but what kind of, what was it like and how did you get through that? Like your support system, your people out at work were helpful, I would imagine. Um, yeah. What, what was that kind of like, especially the last like two months or so when it really got to crunch time, you were like eating not a whole lot and doing tons of cardio and starving yourself basically. Yeah. So pretty much my job, unless we're filming as a desk job, we sit there and we edit and so it's really easy to bored eat yeah um and i think my biggest supporter through the whole thing was my mom and i'd i'd be busy so she would prepare food for me in tupperware containers um just ground beef ground turkey and rice with no extra olive oil on it just stuff i could easily dump onto the scale myself so Mm -hmm. big biggest angel biggest supporter in my life always but Aside from that, that May when I started cutting, I had actually just turned 21. So oh, I, I spent the first, yeah, I spent the first half of my year on my 21st birthday and I didn't touch a drop of alcohol. So, Dang. yeah. And the guys, because like I said, they're my best friends in the entire world, they were super supportive of it, but there were definitely some things that I just couldn't do with them. Like they went on a trip to Nashville mm-hmm. to see Tristan's brother, who is a super talented musician and he plays at bars. But I couldn't go, not because not just because I couldn't drink, but because I would have no way to bring food there that I could weigh. Yeah. Um, and then we went on a trip to um, some waterfalls in Brevard, North Carolina, which is a super beautiful place to see Tristan's grandma, and she catered barbecue from like a local place and i sat there and ate a cup of rice and ground turkey that i had bought from the grocery store and that was my food for the day so it's definitely it's definitely a grind from like a hunger and all that perspective but if you're going to compete it's definitely a lifestyle change too because there's a lot of stuff that you just can't do yeah I think it's a lifestyle change in general a lot especially coming out of college you eat crap like i post like i'm not trying to compete at all but i posted a picture probably four four or six months ago i think you saw it on on instagram that was three years of change and i'd lost like 15 or 20 pounds and the only thing that i changed really was like i just eat better honestly Mm -hmm. not as i don't starve myself but but it's just it's the diet change i think is, is the biggest thing for a lot of people that are trying to kind of cut even if yeah i think if you're just trying to change your body whether you're bulking or you're cutting i think the misconception is that like working out will get you there mm -hmm. but from my experience working out is only 30 percent of the paddle yeah and the the kitchen is the rest definitely yeah i've noticed that too like when i've been injured from soccer haven't been able to play as long as i'm eating right like Obviously, I'll, I'll gain a pound or two, lose some cardio because I can't run. But generally speaking, like, as long as I'm eating right and not stuffing my face with cake and junk food and drinking all the time, generally, I come out the other side okay. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I guess you'd have probably similar experience when, like, if you were ever injured or the kitchen, like you said, is most of it for you. So... How was the, the last like couple months mentally for you, right? This seems for, for everyone, anyone listening, obviously it's a absurd amount of self, self-sacrifice and, and discipline. So 
how did your how did your mindset change from before you made the decision to compete to afterward like to during the preparations and then now afterwards have you noticed any changes in, in your mindset just how you approach day-to-day life as well yeah so i think when i first wanted to compete i saw my favorite instagram fitfluencers and all of that with their shirts off on stage and i was like that's cool i want to do that but i didn't really know the commitment it was going to take and i think i had a 11 week cut period and i got to about like month i got to about like week number five when i like really started to see change in my body from week number one and that's when i was like oh shit, this is like really really hard um and that's when it kind of been, became less of bodybuilding for me and more like more more life and life lessons because I think I realized during that show that a humans are a lot stronger than we think we are and that if you can control your mind and a natural human instinct like hunger then you Mm -hmm. can really control any aspect of your life and so that's kind of the mindset that I took into my entire show I just said I don't really care what place I get as long as I don't cheat my diet and I genuinely give it 100% and don't skip a workout. Um, at the end of the day, I'm going to be happy with what I did. And I didn't win. I got second, but I'm happy with what I did and I don't regret a single thing. Yeah, definitely. That's a big, that's a big change. So have you noticed that come through now? Like when you're going through day-to-day stuff or whatever, you use the lessons that you learned during that preparation, during the preparation for the show? Yeah, so I I mean, definitely when you're in a hardcore kind of thing, like a bodybuilding show, your ego is definitely a little boosted and you think you're a little, a little better than everyone else because you're like, hey, I'm doing this really hard thing that you guys can't do. <laughs> but um, so right now I'm definitely a little lazier than I was back in the day. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are times when I've come to obstacles and I just kind of think back to when I did something that hard in my life and it changes my perspective on it Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i think what a bodybuilding show really does to you is that it teaches you that change doesn't come overnight it's a lot of times a 10-week grind and that's something that i've carried into my life where if i want something to change or if i want to pursue something it's going to take time and that's what a lot of people who followed my journey during and after the show uh told me that they saw how much work it took day in and day out to get your body to look like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was a lot. Two times a day, yeah. man, fan, Instagram story, back at the gym, weighing his rice, yeah. weighing his yeah, ground I, beef. Yeah, I counted the days on social media just kind of as a joke at first, but then it became an accountability thing because mm-hmm. I didn't want to lie to myself. But more towards the end, there were so many people that supported me and that just followed along for no reason. <laughs> but yeah. I just felt like I couldn't let any of them down either. Yeah, did that help getting the, the support from, from social media? No, I know probably me and like the Sammy Nizzi and some other people probably were reaching out to you all the time being like, keep going, man. Yeah, I had the most insane support system through that whole thing for something that people could have easily said was a self-inflicted like, <laughs> kind of crappy lifestyle of starving yeah. and all that but no yeah. all my friends were so supportive I had a rotation of people that I would FaceTime while I was on the Stairmaster and yeah it definitely helped 
because it wasn't just something to distract myself or something to motivate me to work harder, but I could tell that I was um, inspiring people because I'd have people uh, start posting on their Snapchat stories, like day one at the gym at the mm-hmm. band. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I'm like, my working out is actually inspiring people to get in better shape, which is amazing. That's awesome. I think this is a good place to get on to the, the final stretch. Where can we find your guys' website and your Instagram at? Yeah, um, our Instagram is at the Triad Collective. Um, give us a follow. We post. We don't really post a lot of our client work on there. We like to just post cool, creative things and pictures of ourselves. That's just a place where we keep you updated on what we're doing. And then our website, newly designed website, is www.triadstudios.co. And that's where you can find our client work and all the people that we've worked with in the past. And then myself, if you want to follow me and see some decently edited pictures of myself it's uh at dpan period visuals on instagram sounds good you heard it here first do you guys have any cool projects coming up in, in the near term uh yeah so we're in the process of uh talking to a guy who's using a lot of a lot of sports has become super analytical and so we're in the process of talking to a guy who might be using Jose Bautista, mm-hmm. um, the old guy with the super famous bat flip, mm-hmm. um, as his actor for his product. So we might get to film him. And then aside from that, we're doing a lot of um, individual stuff with like Kickstarters and stuff like that for super innovative products that we're really happy to be a part of because we think they're going to blow up one day. Awesome. Well, you heard it here first. Go to their website, www.triadstudios.co, and we will see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Yes.